I uh, wanted to address today something that I think maybe doesn't get addressed enough. Um, and I've entitled this presentation, A More Beautiful Story. So this is what, session five of GYC West um, 2015 for the family health track. So I've called this A More Beautiful Story, Christ Our Editor. And we've, these are some of the things that we have looked at over the last four sessions or so. We've kind of figured out that what we value sometimes overall and sometimes at any given moment is what dictates all of our actions at any given moment. Um, the supreme value is love. God is love. And we know that love never fails. Sometimes we wonder and we look at the circumstances around us and we wonder what does that really mean. Um, but we know that that's a promise that God has given us. So we try to make sense of this promise that love never fails. We also have talked about the fact that love, when it's in place, and when it takes over in our lives, leads to a deeper awareness. And that deeper awareness then sets the stage for deeper engagement in our relationships. And when we have that deeper engagement, then faithfulness is an outcropping of that awareness and that engagement. So that's just kind of a sum of some of the overall, in case you missed the, the broader points of what the past few sessions have really been about. You know, these are the things that we would hope that you would take away. Um, Mark is actually going to talk next section uh, a little bit more about engagement and faithfulness and abiding. So my question to you now is, have you experienced pain and suffering so deeply that you felt that you could not go on? Has anyone, you felt that? Anybody in here never experienced that depth you have? Not quite in your life yet. And I'm talking about not quite that much. Okay. Yeah, and I'm talking about pain and suffering, not where you can make sense of it, where you can say, yes, okay, I see how this God can make good out of this, but where you literally are so blindsided by this kind of misery and pain, and you cannot make the sense out of it. It just seems senseless to you, and, and as a result, you feel that you cannot go on. If you haven't, you will. I, I personally believe that this is part of our faith walk in this life, that, that you know, like Job, <laughs> there were a lot of things that happened to Job. Of course, we can look back on Job's story and, and make sense of it, right? But when he was in the midst of it, that didn't really make much sense to him. And yet he was faithful. And, and we are called to be faithful through and in spite of this kind of pain and suffering. To go to a point, you said you were reading, or one of you were reading, or your friend is reading Cost of Discipleship um, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. To be able to be to this point where when things do not make sense, God still makes so much sense to you that you can still find a way to go on. But in order to test that, you have to get to that point in your life where you really do feel, you know, it, it is a choice to make that determination as to whether, you know, I'm facing this misery and this sorrow, and I feel like I cannot go on. Now, for many of us, this does not come until we have faced something in the context of family. We're talking about family health here. But usually this kind of sorrow comes in the context of family. 
It comes possibly from an unfaithful spouse, or it comes from the loss of a child. Now, most of you, you just don't know love till you've had children, really. And you, then you know you would literally lay down your lives for your children. And yet, sometimes when you feel as if they may be slipping away through your fingers, you feel as if, I cannot go on. I cannot face eternity without this child. And then you understand just how deeply the Father loves us. And all of a sudden, love and the concept of love and the concept of a love that is eternal and that never fails really starts to make sense. But I want to talk about some things today that hopefully will help prepare you for that moment, if and when it hits, or if it hits again, that sense of, I have really hit something now that's too much for me to handle, and I feel as if I cannot go on. And as I said, this, this often happens in the context of our family and, and our relationships. We know, the Bible tells us, in the world you will have trouble. Right? That's, we have all kinds of promises for good, but we also have some assurances about what we will face as, as Christians. But do you know what the next phrase is in this verse? Yes, but be of good cheer. Because I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. Now, again, that makes sense. And sometimes we can actually do that when the suffering makes sense. But how do you be of good cheer when the suffering makes no sense to you? That is a huge battle in the Christian life. And yet, sometimes it's actually your children who are standing back and watching you face this battle. And this is going to be the testing ground. You know, we got to stand back and look at Job, right? For our children, they may never want to read the book of Job. Okay? Or it may, it's distant. It's this guy from way in the past, the Old Testament. What does that mean to them? For them, we are the Job. And so how we react and how we respond in these kinds of situations is of huge consequence to our children's lives and their faith, and sometimes to our spouses' lives and faith, or our brothers and sisters, even our parents, we can have a deep impact on. And so how we respond in these kinds of situations is very important to consider. So the question that I want to consider today is, what do you do when things go horribly wrong? How do you face this? How do you deal? We know that there are three really, really important things, right? From 1 Corinthians 13, it says there is faith, hope, and love. But how do you cling to hope? And if you don't have hope, what good is love to you anyway? Okay, we tend to focus on the love aspect of things, but I think we're living in a world where um, people's hearts are languishing for lack of hope as much as anything else. And so, you know, this is telling us that we have three essential things. Love is the most important, but the other two are also essential faith and hope, love, and they go together. So how do you cling to hope when you're in the midst of hopelessness? So some of the things that I've shared with you over the past day have been about shifting your perspective on something, you know, looking, focusing on the value that is driving your action instead of focusing on the action. Um, shifting perspective can sometimes empower you to make certain types of decisions and respond to crises in a certain way. So again, I'm going to share some things with you today that I hope will shift your perspective and prepare you and give you hope, give you courage to face those times of hopelessness if and when they hit you. And I believe if they haven't already, they will.
It's really important when you're facing a crisis, a crisis like of the depth that I'm talking about, that you know the truth. And this is in times of peace, in times of growth, these are the times where we gather knowledge, we gather wisdom, and hopefully that wisdom will be enough to see us through, that it will be a basis for our faith when we face really bad circumstances. And of course, part of knowing the truth is knowing the truth, right? Knowing Christ, I really don't separate these things in my mind. I mean, if Christ truly is the source of all good things and all knowledge, it's not two separate things. I know him. You know, he said, if you know me, you know the Father. If I know him, if I know his heart, I know who he is, truth is part of knowing him. So the Bible says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Again, knowing the truth is going to prepare you for times of crisis and for times of shaking when you face a sorrow and a pain that is deeper than you feel that you can bear. So I want to give you some things, just some highlight a few ideas, a few perspectives that come straight out of Scripture that I think sometimes get overlooked, but are ideas and perspectives that if you cling to these, when you're faced with these kinds of circumstances in your relationships, in your family, um, you know, and in, in, in your marriage relationships, that you'll be able to face them and go on and not give up. First of all, we have to remember that God has a plan. Okay, we tend to see him as kind of separate and distant. Now, that, there are theological views out there that do see God as separate and distant. The Adventist view is not one of them. And yet, sometimes we tend to function as if we think he is far away and distant when we're facing our crises or making decisions or whatever it is we're doing, going about our business. We forget that he has a plan. He instituted it from the beginning. He is going to see it through. And we, it is not, you know, our salvation, the outcome of this world, the outcome in our own children's lives, these things are not in our hands. The world is in the Lord's hands. And he says this to us. This is not, I'm not making this up. This comes directly from his word. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope, Jeremiah 29, 11. And then these are the two I shared with you yesterday. Many plans occupy the mind of the man. We have all kinds of plans. But the Lord's purposes will prevail. In other words, he's telling us we cannot thwart him, which I find intensely comforting and liberating. We cannot thwart his plans for our lives. He says, from the beginning I revealed the end. From long ago I told you things that had not happened, saying my plans will stand and I will do everything I intended to do. And that is there's a lot of hope in knowing that God has a plan. But of course, things happen, right? And they seem to be out of line with that plan. What do we do with those things? And are they really out of line with the plan or with the context? Remember we talked about yesterday, we have to understand the context, do a situation analysis like we do in marketing, of what context are we living and breathing and growing in? Okay, what, what context is, are our children growing up in? What is one, we said, I, talked, I told you a story yesterday about a man who came, an Asian man who showed up in Maine and asked for the highest point uh, a vantage point where he could look around and it was during World War II 
and all of a sudden it started a rumor that there was a Japanese spy there looking, you know, ready to, you know, surveying the area so it could be bombed. What was the context of that rumor, of the way information got twisted? The war. So what is our context that our children are growing up in, that we're living in, that sometimes can skew our view of what is true? Are we also in a war? Yeah. Yeah, we live in the context, yeah, and we, we live in a context, a bigger world that is a real war, just as real as World War II was. And sometimes that can actually skew our view of what is right and wrong, of what is true, what is not true. And so we need to be aware of that. The other thing that I think that we sometimes let go of is the idea that we are part of his plan. Sometimes we think, well, he has his plan, he's functioning in the world, but somehow I have stepped outside of this. I have, you know, we tend to see him as a fisherman, you know, on a fishing pole, and, and we're on the end, and oh, he let one get away. Or he's the shepherd, he's the good shepherd in the field, and, and, but he, maybe he just turned his head for a moment because he had to deal with things like World War II, and oh, he let a sheep get away. Now, what, what kind of weak view of God is that? Is that really the extent of God's power when he says, I know my plans for you and they cannot be thwarted and I'm going to see my plan through until the end? When somebody gets away, is it because God was off his watch or out of control of what was happening in the world? Did he lose one by just being a little bit inattentive for a second? No. So even when we are functioning within this plan, we're not kind of out at the perimeter where, oh, he's kind of unaware, and oh my goodness, now I need to turn around and, and figure out what this person, I've got to deal, you know, I dealt with Mark for a while, now I need to deal with Connor. Oh no, I have to, yeah, that's how it was with my kids. I was just, in fact, I, we, were at a, we were somewhere, I can't remember where we were recently, and there was a, a woman and she had twins. And she was trailing these twins around, and they were toddlers, and one would go running this way, and she'd go after this one, and of course, we're, we're up above watching this happen, so she's running after this one, and I'm watching the other one start trailing off into a crowd of people where she's not even going to be able to see the other twin, and I'm just watching this happen, and I'm thinking, you know, what is God's view of us? Does he just let one get away while he's chasing after another? I don't think so. You know, that, those, that's the difference between us and God. We have those limitations as parents. He doesn't have that limitation. Again, that's a hugely comforting thought to me because I know that I am part of his plan. He says, before I formed you in the womb. Now, is he talking to just some of us here? I mean, who, yeah, is he not just, just talking to Jeremiah? Before I formed you, and is he just talking to the church? Is he just talking to... Who is he talking to, potentially? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart for my holy purpose. That includes our wayward children. That includes our wayward children. I appointed you to be a prophet for the nations. Our appointment does not go away simply because we stray or simply because we lose. Like I said in the beginning, what were the three things that we talked about that love tends to translate into? You remember? What has to come first? Awareness. Awareness. 
we have to have some knowledge and some wisdom to begin with before we can then engage. Okay, so the awareness leads to the engagement so that this is fully informed awareness and engagement that then leads to faithfulness. We want to enforce faithfulness without awareness first and engagement. Perhaps what our children need, perhaps what the people that we're trying to reach Christ for, what they need really is awareness before faithfulness will come and, and fall into place. So he says, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart for my holy purpose. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. So that's the second thing. You are part of his plan. Another thing we need to hold on to and remember is that tragedy did not begin with us and tragedy is not going to end with us. That includes our children. That includes uh, spouses and friendships and, and parents. The, when, when someone falls or fails, let's say a child, a, a teenage daughter comes home and, get in, and is pregnant, announces to you that she's pregnant. Is that the beginning of the tragedy in your life? When did the tragedy really begin? Yeah, yeah, what am I really asking? <laughs> Does the tragedy begin with the wayward daughter? Does the tragedy begin with that hard-hitting, oh, wow, this is going to change our lives forever kind of event? Yeah, and where does it go? I mean, you hinted at it. Where does it go all the way back to? Yeah, I mean, the tragedy, the tragedy is already here. The tragedy has already arrived. If you had a nasty thought earlier that morning before your daughter informed you that she was pregnant, if you lost your temper with your spouse before that event when your daughter told you that she was pregnant, hasn't the tragedy already been occurring? Is that a greater tragedy? I mean, isn't the tragedy an ongoing, isn't that the context? that we're living in here is a war and that we are sinful people with sinful tendencies. We are failing and we're all failing together. Now, that may not sound very comforting, <laughs> but if you consider where it leads to, it sets you up to be comforted. Because tragedy does not begin with us, tragedy does not end with us. Again, this goes back to the fact that God is in control, not us. I'm so thankful for the fact that God is in control of the outcome, not me. I cannot force my children to make right choices. I cannot force them to acknowledge and engage and be faithful to God. So I have to have a very deep understanding of what it is I actually can do in order to accomplish that purpose. So we know this is true because Romans says, wherefore is by one man, and this is not the only verse. There is any number of verses that I can do to back any one of these things up, but I will try to pick the best one. Wherever is, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one Christ and we know that you know, by the context that he's referring to Christ, shall man be made righteous. Okay, so we know, you know, Eve ate a fruit. So we know that our teenage daughter getting pregnant is probably, you know, if, a, if eating a fruit can send this world on this kind of careening course 
through the ages of misery and death, then we know that we're part of a bigger tragedy. It doesn't matter how big or small our actions are. You, you can set in, in um, motion events with one small, sharp misuse of your tongue <laughs> that can derail your entire marriage. Now, yes, not one thing is going to end up doing that, but it can certainly start a course of events that will change your relationship over time. So do the little things matter? Absolutely. But again, the tragedy does not begin with us. The tragedy does not end with us. What this does is help us put into perspective when we face those big events that our children bring home to us or that our spouses bring home to us. And we have to realize, okay, this is huge to me. But in the bigger picture, this does not mean that the world is suddenly not overcome anymore by the God who's in control. Does that make sense? Okay. The next thing I want to leave with you is that our job is not to raise children who never sin, but rather to raise children who ultimately reject sin. Now, this may not sound like a very big difference, but perspective makes a difference and value makes a difference. Again, I talked about you may choose to do different actions based on whether you want long-term success versus short-term success. So if I ultimately want to raise my children to reject sin, then that may change the way I interact with them, the things I tell them, the way I correct them, the patience that I use, the kindness, the warmth, the love that I use, the context that I create for them versus if I am simply going through my days, okay, you are not going to do this, you're not going to do this, you're not going to do this, and if you don't do all these things, at the end of the day, it will all add up to something good. We know, the Bible tells us, that all of our righteousness adds up to what? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. Filthy rags. So what we're doing by enforcing all of those little things, here's my list of 200 things, you know, Chelsea <laughs> or Taylor or Adriana or Emily Beth. If you do these things, it's going to add up to righteousness at the end of the day. What we've just done is given them a huge untruth, which is going to skew their view of who God is and how they are saved and actually who saves them. However, if we want them to come to a point of ultimately rejecting sin and feeling its consequences and understanding that it is not a good thing, it's not a choice that they want to embrace, then sometimes when we sit back and we see something happen to them that is horribly tragic and to us feels like the end of the world, if we come back to this truth from the Bible, we can say, you know what, if this contributes to them ultimately rejecting everything that is bad and wrong and drives them into the arms of me and to our, their, our Savior, then I can rejoice in and through these things. It does, again, I talked about moral disengagement. That doesn't mean the thing itself was right. Is it, does that mean it was right that our daughter went and got pregnant? Does it mean it was right that we lost our temper with our spouse? No. Embracing this truth does not make wrong things right. But what it does is it helps us to understand the context within which God is working in our lives and in our children's lives. And again, to me, this is very comforting to know that I can ride the waves, I can roll with the punches as they come to me, whatever may come my way, whatever choices my children make, 
that I may not be comfortable with or that somehow I feel that I've failed as a parent doesn't mean that God has failed because he is the one ultimately who is the shepherd, not me. I realized early on that it was not my job to firmly to get my children to recognize my voice as the shepherd. That was going to do them wrong because at some point I was going to fail and if they saw me as the shepherd and then I failed, their view of God and their faith, their faith would crumble. What I had to do was help them to recognize the voice of the real shepherd, which is Christ, and for them to understand that I, we're following the same shepherd. So that if I failed and I lost my temper, I did something that shook their faith, that they weren't ultimately going to lose their faith overall. So for we, know, we know this is true because for all have sinned and fallen short of the, the glory of God, we are fellow sinners with our spouses, with our children. It's so easy to look at them and their experiences and their tragedies. Now, I, I do have personal experience with this, um, and it comes in the context of, you know, I had wonderful, loving, uh, committed, just the most precious parents. I'm so fortunate to still have my mother. She's 88. I lost my dad 10 years ago. He was just a strong, solid, principled man. Um, but when I was little, uh, I was sexually abused by a man. We, they had sent me, I was going to a little uh, small one-room schoolhouse. It was the perfect setting where you think you've put your children into the perfect situation. You know, you send them to that school that's off in the woods or whatever it is. You think nothing can happen to them there. Well, bad things can happen anywhere. They can happen anywhere. So it was a, a, a man who owned the school building that our little church had this small little schoolhouse. And it was, I'd had a wonderful year, but he started abusing several of the children, and I was one of them. And my parents didn't know. Of course, I didn't you know, initially come forward with this information. But my dad had a dream one night that I had died, that I was in a casket, and he started to worry about me. And I was probably eight or nine or so. And he really started where he didn't know what was happening. Of course, sometimes these things happen, and somebody, the perpetrator, will actually kill the children so that they don't, you know, get found out. Um, but my dad was worried about me. He didn't know even why he should be worried about me. Well, at some point, I, and I, I really don't even remember. It's such a vague memory now. I, but I did feel like I needed to, to tell somebody. So I told my mother, and she told my father. And, um, and this man, you know, ended up being taken out of that situation. The sad thing was that it shut the school down, which had been a wonderful school with a wonderful teacher. Um, it, it was one of the happiest years of my life in that little schoolhouse. I learned wonderful spiritual lessons. And because I had come forward and shared this, everybody lost the happy school, the, the wonderful teacher. The teacher that came in was not nearly as sweet and loving. And... And my parents, you know, and they, they loved me. This was a natural response, acted as if I had died, okay? Because isn't that how you feel when something happens to your child? You feel like, oh, I have completely failed as a parent. I just want to die, you know? And so I'm sure that's how they felt. They felt like, I have failed. This is the end. My precious little daughter that we were supposed to protect and take care of, this terrible thing has happened to her. And, and it felt to them like the end of the world. Well, guess what? Because it felt to them like the end of the world, it felt to me like the end of the world. And that set me up for choices later on in my life, you know, teenage years. I mean, what do you have to live for if your world has already ended? Why, do, why, do you, why, why should you make good choices? Why should you have joy and peace and hope when everybody looks at you, every time they look at you, they cry and act like the world has ended? Do you see what I'm, I'm saying with this? Now... 
I knew this lesson. <laughs> but there are still times when my children have come to me with whatever, certainly things not even as big as that. And I just fall apart in terms of, oh, I failed as a parent. This is the end of the world. And I have to just kind of knock myself upside the head and remember that I was going to tell myself not to do this to my own children. Because again, the three essential things are not just love, right? What are the other things? Faith and hope. Our children, our spouses need hope. How can we espouse a faith that does not work in the face of the worst kind of circumstances, most hopeless kind of circumstances? What good is it if it does not prepare us for those situations? Now, it can, it can happen in other situations as well. I know a woman who, whose husband had just become a conference president, and then it came out that he was having an affair. And, uh, and this was years ago. And they had to, and he was remorseful, he was sorry. I mean, these things happen. Um, hap they happen more than you would like to even think. They say 50% of marriages are going to experience unfaithfulness. That includes in the church as well as outside of the church. Okay, so it can happen to anybody, anybody in the right circumstances. What do you do? In that set of circumstances, do you give up? Do you say, I guess my faith wasn't worth anything at this point? It can't fix this. This is the end of the world. Do you give in to depression and, and hopelessness? And if you do, what's the outcome of that choice? Uh, she stayed with her husband. They rebuilt their marriage. Of course, he was no longer conference president after that point. But they showed up together at church, you know, the following Sabbath and sat together. And of course, you know, people talked and, you know, people redefined them, saw them in a different way. I'm sure, you know, uh, you know they tend to look at the victim as there must, must have been something wrong with her, you know, tend to look at the, 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 the offending spouse as well. There's definitely something wrong with him, <laughs> okay, or vice versa. And then everybody sees you differently and treats you differently. This is how we function as a church. Is that any different than us looking at our children when they've come home and done something horrendous? and saying, you know, you've died. It's, it's to me, you're, you're dead. Now, we may not say that, but we act as if they have. Is that consistent with the gospel of hope? Again, how many of us have sinned and fallen short? Yes, all of us, all of us. So there's not that much distance between us and an offending spouse or a pregnant teenager or whatever. We have all sinned, and usually we have sinned on any given day. Um, but as Christians, the difference between us, remember the difference between Saul and David was not whether they sinned, right? The difference was in their perspective and their response to their sin and their remorsefulness. This is what the first, I don't remember what chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets goes into this in much depth, beautiful depth. And so, you know, we want to be David's, not Saul's. Saul became hopeless. David, literally, we see in the Psalms that he would lament, 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 and then grasp hope, okay? Lament, 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 but every Psalm ends with hope, and that's what our children need is, okay, this is terrible. I can't believe he did this, but this does not change anything, okay? This does not change who God is. This does not change my faith. This, this does not change hope. I still have hopefulness, and this is going to change our lives, certainly, you know, but we're going to go on, and this does not change how God loves us and views us. They need this hope. Again, I've probably <laughs> said
stayed on that one too long, but I think it's a really important one, and I think that we not only fail in that area as families, but we, ought, we fail in that way as churches because we have many people who struggle with sin, and we tend to um, marginalize them when this happens. They are get pushed to the fringes, and we look at them as if they have died and, and wonder then why we're losing people in droves from, from the church. Another thing I want you to cling to in those moments of deep hopelessness is the understanding that our lives are fragmentary. Psalm 39.5 says, You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. For all flesh is like the grass, and I've combined two verses because for Peter, in 1 Peter it's actually quoting Isaiah 48, 40 verse 8. For all flesh is like grass, and all our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I don't know if any of you have ever heard, there's a Fernando Ortega album, and I can't remember which album it is, but he's taken verses like this. They're, I think they're all scripture verses and and put it to music and the whole story of it and it's it's definitely worth listening to and and the grass withers uh and the flowers fade but the word of the lord endures forever that's my favorite song from that album i just listen to it over and over because it's just you know it recognizes the tragedy and the reality of our life but it does not rec- look at it separate from the hope in which we live and that's what we have to do is marry those th- two things together so our lives are fragmentary and that, that realization hit me. That used to bug me, <laughs> this idea. You know, you want to have this perfect uh, life that kind of begins well, has a perfect middle, and ends well, right? Then you feel like, I've lived a good life. I have served the Lord well, and I, it ended well, and now, you know, th- it was like a perfect, neat little package. This is our daughter uh, at her wedding this summer, and um, we're, going to, we're flying to see her at... at you know, as soon as this conference is over. But before she left, she, know, she knows that this is my favorite quote. So she wrote this up on my board in my office, and I'll never, probably until <laughs> I die, it will still be there in my office in her handwriting because it was one of the last things that she did for me before she left and, you know, on to start her own life. Um, but it's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and most of you know what his story is. And, of course, there, there is debate as to, some of the things he was involved in in terms of what was happening with Hitler and the World War uh, II, but he had some amazing perspectives. And this was one that I found especially comforting. He says, it all depends on whether or not the fragments of our life reveals the plan and material of the whole. There are fragments which are only good to be thrown away and others which are important for centuries to come because their fulfillment can only be a divine work. What do we call ourselves as a church? We are the what church? Remnant? Yeah, the remnant. Okay, so there are some to be thrown away, but there are some that are important for centuries to become not because of their value in and of themselves, but because they are part of what? They reflect a bigger whole. Yes, a bigger vision, a bigger whole, a bigger reality. They are fragments of necessity. So, and this is the, this is the point, this is the comforting point to me. If our life, our fragmentary life, whatever it may look like, reflects such a fragment 
We shall not have to bewail our fragmentary life, but on the contrary, rejoice in it. So whether we have a beautiful end or beginning or middle doesn't really so much matter because we're not supposed to be reflecting wholeness in the first place. We are fragments that are part of the bigger whole. And if we keep that perspective, we maintain that perspective, then the fact that our life feels so fragmentary, you know, you tend to feel this way when a child, you know, I had a a niece who died of cancer at age 16. You're like, wait, this is, this doesn't make any sense. What a fragmentary life. Yet her life very much reflected a, a greater whole that was beautiful. So we do not have to bewail and bemoan our fragmentary lives. If we have children who, whose lives are cut short, or um, as in the case of my uncle, really lived a, a, a life that did not reflect the greater whole until the very end, until the very end, and he was baptized at age 83. Um, and he would, he would call, I'd talk to him on the phone, and he would say, you know, and this was a man who'd been an alcoholic, and... Um, you know, we lived a very hard life, made some hard choices, hurt a lot of his relationships. And I talked to him, and he says, you know, I, I listen. He says, sometimes I feel like I'm just hearing angels singing. I just feel peace and joy. I'm thinking, this is not the uncle I knew, you know. And yet, in my mind and in my memory now, we just lost him recently, his life was fragmentary, and it certainly wasn't perfect, but it reflects a greater whole that is much more beautiful. And, and if our lives, with all the tragedies that may hit us, whatever they may be, if they ultimately lead us to reject sin and embrace a God who loves us and is good, then they reflect the greater whole. And so we do not need to bewail or bemoan our damaged, fragmentary lives because they reflect something bigger. So be thankful for your fragmentary life. Don't compare it to somebody else's. You know, we we have seen, there are people who seem to just, they have the perfect beginning, the perfect middle, the perfect end. In fact, I wrote a blog entry about, I'll read a few lines of it. We emerge into consciousness, innately desiring lives long and full with dramatic beginnings, meaningful middles, and poignant endings, don't we? We like a story that's perfect from beginning to end. We require happy childhoods tearful high school graduations, love gained and lost and regained with new insight and permanence, weddings graced with innocent flower girls who toss petals in neat distribution, fulfilling careers remembered for moments of punctuated sacrifice. Does sound like the perfect life that we're all hoping we live, that we want our children to live? Children and grandchildren who outgrow the piercing stage and establish far-flung careers that bring them home for Thanksgiving dinner to drop names and casually spill about their accomplishments with feigned, uh, feigned uh, humility. Uh, and finally, a well-attended funeral where our lasting contributions are recognized with just the right balance of show and restraint and we receive an honored place in the collective memory of those who knew us way back when and just can't get over how far we came and how much we accomplished in spite of it all. This is what we we hope for, and yet that does not always necessarily reflect what God is trying to accomplish in our lives. So we miss the point. In all our wanting, in all our demanding, in all our rescripting, we fail to understand that our lives We're never meant to fit neatly into brown paper packages tied up with strings. Meaning comes from partness, 
being a part of the bigger whole, not from being whole in and of ourselves. And maybe sometimes the Lord allows these things to happen in our lives to remind us of that. Um, I don't know. I'm going to ask him someday. So, you know, this has caused me to reflect on my own life. Nothing in my life has gone as planned. I mean, nothing has gone as I planned it. Uh, It has all gone, though, in some ways, now that I can look back on a few things, much better. Now, there have been times, many times in my life when I felt like I could not go on. The pain did not make sense. It was too much for me to handle. But in hindsight now, I can see that the tears, the heartaches, the disappointments, they have all had their place in an eternal quest to become a worthy fragment. That really is my desire for myself, for my children, is that I will be a worthy fragment that really reflects the greater whole. That is what I wish for my children more than anything else. And in the end, it will never have been about me. It will have been about the God who created me, and I'm really thankful for that. Finally, and this is my last thought, that is that God has the final edit. Now, this, this little epiphany came to me. I was going to show you a, a video, but we don't have that capacity here. Um, I, for ASI sent me, when I was the communication director uh, for that organization, they sent me to Africa to, uh, with another person who was a videographer to create some videos for several nonprofit organizations doing their business over there. And so we went here and there and did interviews. And of course, you have to take all these parts and pieces and edit them together and make something good out of them. Well, on the final day, uh, we had really pushed it, pushed it, pushed it. And they wanted me to uh, record some intros. You know, like, you know, this is Welcome to ASI Magazine. You know, it's around, they play them on 3ABN still, I think. And, uh, and so I had to write these intros. And we had two hours till we had to leave for our plane. And I had five or six of these intros that I had to film. And they did not want me to come back and do it in the studio. Okay? So I said, all right. Um, I, I wrote the night before, you know, I'm just about, we had to, I, I was not going to miss my plane because I'd been away from my children for three solid weeks. And so, you know, we got out at five or six in the morning, you know, the light was just kind of streaming in over the farm, we were at Riverside Farm, and, and started taping. Well, oh, you can it's not, for, before, after the next one, for the next one? Yeah, that'd be fine. It'll it'll work, but it doesn't. You can't hear the sound through this. Oh, you can hear the sound. Okay, let's see if it'll work. How do I get it to play? It might not be actually there. It may not have translated into the actual thing. You know, it's funny. I still just get the chills when I see that because of the epiphany that hit me. That had to do with what I'm telling you now, and that is that. Oops, that's not. <laughs> um, you know, everybody needs an editor. And in the final cut, all of those little mistakes and things get edited away. And what comes out? I mean, just for a few short seconds, or you know, what was it? Thirty seconds of perfect footage. You saw all the behind the scenes, you know, the flies flying in my face and, you know, I couldn't remember the lines or my tongue twisted and I just can't get it out and I'm nervous that I was hot and it was just so hard to just get it done and I was nervous that I was going to miss my plane and yet 
when everybody sees the finished project, nobody really knows that, you know, it's playing, playing there. Because all of that gets edited out, it falls on the cutting room floor, it used to be in a physical sense, certainly now it's more in a digital sense. And we end up with a more beautiful story. And that is the truth of God in our lives as well, is that he is going to have the final edit on our lives. When it all comes down to it, uh, he is going to wipe away all the tears from our eyes. There will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. If we cling to this hope, then the things that we're going through in this life that are unbearable, we can remember that this is all going to pass away. This is going to fall on the cutting room floor. This is going to be edited out. And in the end, the bigger story is going to remain. The story of salvation of a God who loved us while we were yet sinners, gave his life for us, redeemed us, changed us, and ultimately saved us and took us to a better place, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. That's a much more beautiful story. But all of these other things that are happening in the middle are also part of the edits, and, but they're all going to get cut out in the end. There's a song that talks about this that I just love. It says, love has the final move. Because remember, God is love. Uh, it says, it was love that set this fragile planet rolling, tilting at our perfect 23, you know, the 23 degrees. Molecules and men infused with holy, finding our way around the galaxy. And paradise is up and flown away for now, but hope still breathes, and truth is always true. Just when we think it's almost over, love has the final move. Love has the final move. God is going to have the final move. In, in our children's lives, in our lives, in Earth's history, this is something that we can take tremendous comfort in. And when we face those challenges and those pains, painful heartaches in our lives that come to us and make us feel like we can't go on, if we can cling to this hope and, and understand this truth, then we can find a way to go on. Now, Mark is going to share um, right after this about ideas about what it means to grow in grace and abiding in him and you know how that has played out in our family life. But I just want to share and, and end with a couple of quotes here that put it all in perspective. Ellen White says in Amazing Grace, page 293, many have an idea that they must do some part of the work alone. They have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, but now they seek by their own efforts to live aright. But every such effort must fail. Jesus says, without me, ye can do nothing. Do you think perhaps sometimes the failures that we do go through, the Lord is allowing so that we have that reminder that all of our efforts must fail without him? So in that sense, those failures, if they lead us to embrace a good God and reject sin, then isn't that ultimately a good thing and a fragment of life that reflects a greater whole, a much more beautiful story? Our growth in grace, our joy, our usefulness all depend upon our union with Christ. It is by communion with him daily, hourly, by abiding in him that we grow in grace. He is not only the author, but the finisher of our faith. It is Christ first and last and always. And then um, Elizabeth Elliot, who died just this week, uh, this is one of her most powerful quotes. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Let's pray. 
Dear Father, please give us not only faith and faithfulness and love, but lives and hearts full of hope, especially hope when we are faced with challenges that we feel are so painful that we can't go on. Help us to show that kind of hope to the people in our lives, to our spouses, to our friends, to our children, so that they can see that hope in us and through seeing that hope in us, understand what kind of God you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.